having somewhere where you can anchor your trust in, which is independent and not paid for by the coffers of big businesses or politicians is our moment. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Media Voices. We are a media-focused B2B operation that looks at everything to do with journalism, editorial content, absolutely everything under the aegis of media. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. Or Mr. Houston, as I believe we have to call you now <laughs> since <laughs> since the wedding. Yeah, I wasn't here last week because I went and got married. Woo! <laughs> to Joanna. Part of me is wondering, like, are you going to you going to like launch a magazine from the wedding or something? Like, you know? <laughs> Newspaper Club does this thing where you can do like I don't know, fifty copies for not a huge amount of money about your wedding. <laughs> That's actually quite cute. But if yeah, anybody's going to do that, that'd totally be you guys. <laughs> kind of geeky. That clip you just heard was from Nada Arnott, who is Executive Vice President of Marketing for The Economist. Now, we don't often speak to the marketing arm of newspapers and magazines, except where that marketing activity intersects with selling subscriptions. But The Economist has just launched its largest brand campaign since the early 2000s. So I spoke to Nada about how the News Focus magazine is seeking to attract younger readers, why she believes long-term brand building is vital in today's news ecosystem, and the future plans for marketing The Economist. Do you know, I think this might be part of the industry's problem is we don't speak to marketing people enough. Yeah. So there's 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 been a, there's been some stuff out this week, and um, I was talking to Chris Stone for a piece this week, where he was like, you can't launch stuff and then not have a marketing plan for it. Mm. And I actually asked her about that, about why the industry doesn't take brand building and kind of that marketing side as seriously as it probably should. So yeah, really Keep good Keep listening then, stuff <laughs> yeah, through exactly, us. Yeah. But this first story is uh, one of the more infuriating ones I think that we've all come across. Esther, why don't you take us through what is going on with 32 media companies who are seeking a, a suit against Google? So, I mean, this, this broke sort of late last week that there are, there are 32 media and publishing organizations that have come together. People like um, Axel Springer, Sheepstead, um, they've come together and jointly filed this 2.1 billion euro, which is around $2.3 billion um, antitrust lawsuit against Alphabet. Well, Alphabet and and Google. Please excuse my pronunciation, but there's organizations (laughs) from all across Europe. Um, There's Crone in Austria, um, DPG Media in Belgium, Media Hoos from Denmark, Denmark's TV2. uh, There's all sorts, um, quite a lot of sort of uh, Ringier from Switzerland. Um, And they've decided that they're going to file this suit in the Netherlands because the Netherlands has been historically quite sympathetic to antitrust lawsuits. Um, And they basically say they have suffered significant financial losses as a result of Google's anti-competitive practices in the digital digital advertising sector specifically. I'm going to leave the quotes to you guys because these actually <laughs> drove me a bit mad. <laughs> anyway. Well, yes, you can absolutely argue that Google is anti-competitive. It is so dominant within the search space in particular. What I think you cannot do, and Peter, I'm sure you'll back me up on this, is effectively write alternate history fan fiction of how well media companies would be doing without Google and then use that to base a lawsuit. Well, Google's position is because Google's technology is really good and has mm. been for decades. And that idea, was this, these funds could have been reinvested into strengthening the European media asset because media owners are really, really good at <laughs> reinvesting. This whole thing is like, Chris and I were laughing earlier on this. It reminded me of that Gino DeCampo thing where Holly Willoughby tries to compare his macaroni cheese to a carbonara. And he says, well, if, if my grandmother had wheels, she'd be a bike. 
<laughs> it's the same thing, right? Yeah. If Google wasn't there, we'd be we'd be doing great. Well, no, well would because... would we be suing you know Samsung and, and Apple for building mobile phones and affecting print sales? Like, it's extremely spurious, isn't it? It smacks of we have seen this blood in the water here because of things like the Australia deal and what's going on in Canada, and we just kind of want a piece of the pie. And to ask you, you know, your point about actually where it's been filed, that I think is quite smart but cynically motivated it reminds me of so i watched um the evidence session from the uh, house of lords the other week about what the you know the kind of media and tech and how media's been impacted by the tech landscape and to hear david dinsmore talk you would think that google had physically rocked up to <laughs> news uk's offices pulled the door off the safe and just emptied it out whereas of course that's not what happened and the lack of any self-recrimination or even self-examination about the fact that you know media companies have effectively through whether passivity or th- being slow to act contributed to this position was just it wasn't there i can remember writing about this for the media moments report because I, I i landed it with the platforms chapter and there were two studies that came out towards the end of last year and one was sort of saying on the one extreme end we calculate that google owes publishers like millions and millions and millions of pounds, uh, well, of dollars. And on the other end, it was like, well, actually, we calculate that publishers have got this amount of value from being featured in Google search results and all that traffic that Google has been driving them. And you just can't, like, these are, these, these are both kind of professional studies. <laughs> they just both yeah. came out at completely opposite ends of the spectrum. <laughs> and it's not only that, it's that the fact that kind of the publisher's estimation of, you know, how much Google owes them is so uh, vast. Google says it's this much, but we think it's like 50 times that much. And there's just kind of no adults in a room getting around a table together and going, actually, you know what, can we try to work out something a little bit more well, realistic? That, that 100% is a problem. No one's actually looking at the reality of this. Mm. You know, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not defending, or I wouldn't defend Google in the sense of, oh, well, Google can do what the hell it wants. There's, there's lots of stuff that Google needs to fix. We yeah. talked about this the other day, didn't we? About um, sort of bogus AI generated content, particularly around affiliate deals and whatever. So there's lots of stuff they've got to do. And if they've broken specific antitrust rules, then yeah, they should be held accountable and they should be made to pay whatever. <laughs> but I think I said this in the newsletter. Um, for publishers to just be trying to get money back is. <laughs> In fines, it's not a sustainable business model. I've only I've not popped this into the notes yet because it's, it's literally only just broken. Um, Meta, unsurprisingly, said that they're not going to renew a bunch of their commercial deals that they struck I with Australia. I just saw this. I just saw this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is not at all surprising given their position. And uh, so this, this was Australia put this um, this sort of news bargaining type code in place, and um, after sort of. A lot of barneying. Um, eventually, Facebook, what well, Meta and Google paid a bunch of licensing deals. Those are now expiring because that was four or five years ago. And Meta have been like, "Well, we're not renewing them." And news is not important to our platform, and it, it, they're kind of throwing the gauntlet down a bit. ABC, which is one of the uh, one of the Australian broadcasters, said that they'd used funds from the deals uh, to create sixty regional jobs, and they've just said, "Oh, well, it's important that it, it, like th- th- this whole situation is going to create a financial challenge for the ABC that needs to be resolved." Um, and that we need to continue to work with government to do that. This was like just after this news broke, I saw Jeff Jarvis um, tweeted. And, you know, as you might expect, he's quite strident about this. He said, Facebook's divorce from news continues. Dead news tab, no new deals for traditional news, no products made for publishers. Moral to this story, be careful what you lobby for, publishers. You attacked Facebook on every front. What did you expect? Hugs. Ooh. Yeah. 
Go Jeff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, it's it's one of those things. And it's that ABC example is really fucking disingenuous as well because they created 60 regional jobs, right? But they are one of the largest news organizations in there. The whole point when this deal was mooted was that the money would go to independent, some of the money, rather, would go to independent out- news outlets. And to go back to this hearing, you know, uh, Yoshi Herman, uh, Mill Media was there talking to uh, Henry Ford Walker of NewsQuest and David Higgerson from Reach PLC. And they were saying, actually, we need government money to come to us for advertising because we you know, can then use that to develop more regional stuff. But you're the biggest players in that space. You are the biggest regional like publishers. And that will just cut places like Mill Media and other independent titles out of it. There's, oh, it's already I, happening now. Well, yeah. But they, I mean, we need a conversation about relative size here. David Floyd at Social Spider talks about that's about money going to zombie publications. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, which have no staffing, but they're still taking um, public notices. Um, it's, it's some, you know, the bottom line of this and the adult conversation thing is really important. It's a mess, mm. and no one is actually stepping up to say, "Here's what we should be doing about this." It does matter because we, you know, Don Ponsford wrote a thing in in, uh, in press because it may have been this week, um, last week, sorry, um, saying that he had sent a tip about a stabbing in his area, which is. You know, it's in Sussex, and I'm guessing there's not that many stabbings. Uh, and no one followed it up. Um, and then when the person that had done the stabbing was sentenced, he tipped him off again, and no one followed it up. So if that kind of local reporting, whether that's court reporting, whether that's roads, whether that's, you know, local democracy, if that's not getting done by... Yeah. I don't know what you what professional outfits, then society is weaker. Definitely is weaker. And I know Mrs. Thatcher said there's no such thing as society, <laughs> but we all know how fucking wrong she was. <laughs> That's the Thatcher quota for the uh, for this episode <laughs> reached. But uh, I mean, it does matter in that sense. But Esther, you you've made a really good point in the news roundup. <laughs> Does any of this matter anyway? Because there is a giant <laughs> Amazon whale coming up behind us, ready to swallow everything up. And I don't think we're at all ready for this. <laughs> okay, so so Prescott have done quite a good roundup of um, a bunch of data from Walk and Insider Intelligence and eMarketer um, to show that the share of online ad revenue going to Google and Meta is actually in decline. Um, propor- like they're getting more money, but proportionally less. Uh, the the gains in share and ad spend aren't going back to news media or content publishers. Are we what? shocked? What? Um, instead, they're going to a third wave of retail media like Amazon, Walmart, and apparently now TikTok. Mm. Um, so Walks Data shows content media ad spend, which includes all publishers like TV, cinema, and radio, is going to fall to, a, fall to a 27.2% global share in 2024, down from 71% a decade earlier, which, like... That's a steep drop. You can see why people are complaining. <laughs> Esther wins the understatement of the world so far. But as mar- basically, as marketers have begun to realize they can place ads directly where people are already shopping, aka Amazon, they're like, well, why do we need to put adverts on anywhere else? If people are searching for nightlights, let's put my nightlight advert in Amazon where people are searching for nightlights. And you, you kind of you close that gap between intent and purchase 
as as close as you possibly can. Yeah, I, I did quite a lot of reporting into um, retail media quite recently, and the hunger there is is palpable. You can just sense the idea that advertisers are looking, particularly those for like FMCG and a bunch of kind of the very fast moving, low value items. They are all going to be putting their money in retail media I mean, because that's where performance marketing lives and dies, and that's where people can convert more easily. I think I think there's going to have to be a bit of a reckoning on this because I've actually stopped using Amazon in recent years because you go to it and you search for something and it's just all sponsor content. Mm. And you're there like, okay, well, who actually, like what is actually a good, you know, Nightlights, for example, I actually ended up going to Witch and reading their recommendations. <laughs> but I was like, if I'm searching for a Nightlight on here, what is kind of cheap imported tat that is just paid to have the sponsorship slot and paid to have the fake reviews and all that sort of thing? And what is an actually good Nightlight? And that is where publishers have possibly got a bit of an opportunity to get back in. Yeah, will they do it? I don't know. But I, I, we're sort of only at the start of wading through all that where I think people realise they actually need the humans to look at the products, look at the content. And yeah, our, our guests last week talk, were talking about this. I was just about you, to bring that up. You yeah. need the humans to be like, this is a crap smartwatch or this is a great nightlight. I think that's the fact where that you Witch... went to Witch, though, is really interesting. I know. I was just about to say, yeah, yeah. I think that's where Witch is kind of a, a bit of an outlier because that's always been their thing. They've always had that prominence. You know, humans are testing it. Mm. So, so it's, it's, Witch, it's Witch and Good Housekeeping are the two mm. that I actually intentionally go to for product reviews because I know about Good Housekeeping's institute where they te- like you know they test all the washing machines and the vacuum cleaners. And so I just want to know, like, humans checked, it turns <laughs> on. Um, and I think that there was um, there was an interesting Press Gazette note in this piece which actually feeds really nice into what we were discussing in the first story. Um, they said that... The pandemic has taught marketers lessons that were brutal for online news publishers. People were willing to shop for just about anything online, even fresh groceries, and the best place to reach them was on the sites where they were already shopping, not news sites. I can't argue with that. <laughs> no, if, you, if, you're in the, if you're in the market for a £10,000 watch, <laughs> yeah, or yacht. You're, you're unlikely to go to an Amazon-sponsored review. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I want a mega yacht. I'll just go to Amazon and uh, first one. That's fine. Prime, get this yacht here tomorrow. I think there's still, there's still a huge opportunity there. There's um, there's there's a guy I used to work with at, um, at Dennis who's gone and started a site called Totally EV, and he reviews um, electric vehicles. And he's gone he's gone from being like unemployed four years ago to now having like four point nine million views on YouTube. He's reviewed over hundred different vehicles, and he's kind of got this little publishing model himself. And there's there's still a space for for things like that. Like you're not going to. Well, I hope you wouldn't just go to Amazon and just buy an electric vehicle. <laughs> but you want to know somebody's sat in it and checked it and said, you know, this is this is how what it feels like to drive. And I think it's just, you know, okay, nightlights are maybe one extreme end. But you kind of got the thing about smartwatches. You want to know, you know, what does it feel like on somebody's wrist? Is it is it easy to navigate? Does it keep flicking on in the middle of the night? You need humans for this. So what, if anything, can we learn from these two? Stories. The first about you know these suing Google, and the second about Amazon potentially <laughs> disrupting Google's ad revenue. So I'm aware that we sound very pro Google. That there are issues with Google, and um... I think yeah, I, I do want to say actually before we get going, we are not pro Google. I think what we are is pro realism, debating on you know legitimate grounds, not coming at this from a cynical angle, because then you just get argy bargy. You get stuff like. Facebook cutting news, taking news away from people who might necessarily need it, and you also then get publishers completely disrespecting smaller publishers in service of like chasing revenue like that. To listen to some of the bigger publishers beating their chest and clutching their pearls and what other other you know outrage metaphors we can come up with, <laughs> it's just kind of bollocks, right? Because 
what are they doing? They're running stories about the wrong McDonald's delivery or what's new on the shelves at Marks and Spencer's. Or I saw someone this morning, one of the local kind of live sites reporting on someone's uh, private jet that had to be redirected. And, you know, they were to basically taking the piss. You know, I didn't realize she was a local girl. <laughs> Obviously, she's not. She's a Hollywood artist the whole thing is just a mess and for them to be beating their chest and saying you're stopping us doing a great job of covering local news and covering local democracy it's just utter utter cynical box it's a wider conversation than local news though isn't it it's and and i think this is the thing is that this these decisions do affect people like you know the guardian you know the bigger yeah the times that the bigger publishers and magazine publishers as well um but i think as a general thing and and this is this is my issue with things like the press gazette campaign against it is that it news sites news sites publishers are not entitled to ad revenue no and i think if you look at it if if you completely step away from it look at look at it from the perspective of the sellers and the ad buyers if you want to sell a bike and you're, you're a bike retailer you've got a bunch of bikes to sell you've got a choice between advertising on i'm going to pick on the guardian for example advertising on a bike publication let's say single track world or advertising on amazon when somebody is searching for bike uh, if you have tight budgets you are 100 percent gonna spend your money on amazon because that captures that person at that point of intent um, and i think maybe you'd go to single track world if you've got some spare because you know you kind of maybe on the, the halo of of being with bike fanatics um, and like this isn't a case of like the triopoly or whatever we're calling them now stealing ad money. It's that newspapers are no longer the gatekeepers of the media ecosystem in the way that they used to be. The one thing I would say is that Mr. Mark Alco would argue that you should not be buying bikes from Amazon. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, Mark. <laughs> you should be buying bikes from specialist retailers that actually under well, particularly that kind of bike. But yeah, you're right. <laughs> and yet yeah, we're in this place where not only wait, are... do do we all agree? We all no, I think well, we, all... <laughs> we, we we do we agree on the principles, but I have some issues with this whole situation because just what a shitty, soulless, <laughs> transactional world we're building for ourselves yeah if you relate this back to the music review stuff that i I Mm. wrote that thing on pitchfork and casey newton talking about how the algorithm is not going to give him something that he's surprised that he loves and i think that's what both newspapers and magazines have done well for a very 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 long time is create a demand for stuff create a market that only applies to a select proportion of publications um, and those that have relied for a long time on cheap digital advertising are the ones that I think, and, and it's the same ones that have gone into cheap affiliate revenue and really pick up the low-hanging fruit there, that they're the ones that are really, really going to struggle with this. This week, I spoke to Nada Arnott, who is EVP of Marketing at The Economist, as the title launches its biggest brand campaign since the early 2000s. So she has a background in marketing for media companies, having previously worked at Britbox, Hearst, a bunch of other titles. But a news-focused publication is obviously a very different beast. So I first asked her what it was about The Economist that attracted her to the role. Yeah, I uh, started marketing about 
Oh goodness. Over 20 years ago, I, I keep shocking myself every time <laughs> I say that. Uh, and I, I sort of fell into marketing when I started a website uh, in 2004 and realized I actually really quite liked it. And what I liked about it was one, the immediacy of, of the results that you get when you run any digital marketing campaign. But when I segued that experience into media, I realized it was even more exciting because in the media world, it's fast paced you're dealing with new information at every given time. Nothing is ever the same day to day because it's either content in the entertainment space or it's content in the news space. You're always chasing something slightly different and new and exciting. And it's very relevant to millions and millions of people's lives. And so it just feels um, quite important and also very exciting. Nice. Well, you've already preempted my next question there, which is to what extent is marketing within this space predicated on the content, kind of the bread and butter of what media companies are doing? Yeah. And, you know, it's it's interesting in the entertainment space, it was very much content led Mm -hmm. and it was very much promoting new shows, new movies, uh, whatever was, was sort of new and trending. In the news space, we're less about, uh, the the show promotion model, but it's still very much relevant in the sense that I like to get the the brand out there, but it's better if I show you what the brand is about. And I can mm. show you what the brand is about by showing you the content. So content marketing is actually a really big part of what we do uh, in my team at The Economist, uh, largely because, listen, what we do is we sell journalism and the best way to show how amazing the journalism is, is to give you a flavor of it. See, that's that's so fascinating as well, because if you look at what I suppose is the, the places that are doing really, really well in terms of news media at the moment, you know, the MIT, some of the, the what the UK papers are doing, obviously, The Economist, it does tend to be about engendering that sense that the, the content is worth paying for, that the journalism yeah. itself is really what's powering the mission. So how are yeah. you getting that across in practice? Yeah, so we've, uh, a big part of our strategy is on uh, Meta, for example, where we're actually just using articles to get out in front of different audiences. And so the articles are, um, they have the headline that is is catchy. It's not clickbait, but it's catchy. And it's uh, meant to resonate with the audience that we're targeting. Someone clicks through, they get to that article, they get to read it, and then they they sign up. And so, really, we're we don't even have to say to you, by the way, the content is so amazing, and our journalism is worth paying for because they see it live and, and they interact with it. Uh, once you get into a world, and I was very passionate about this when I started. Once you get into a world where you start explaining, oh, we have X number of new articles a day or a week and you get these three benefits and you get it all for this price, you suddenly commoditize what's mm. at, what you're selling. And it's really hard to, to show the true value because all a consumer will do is eventually compare you to another publisher when really what, what is different and, and worth buying is what's intrinsically different about the style of journalism. And you can't communicate that in a, you know, a unique selling proposition bullet. See, that's so fascinating. That's the first time I've heard it articulated that effectively by doing sort of a, I suppose, putting yourself out there as a commodity news organization, you are setting yourself up for comparisons for everybody else. And that seems to, you know, predicate that race to the bottom in a lot of ways. Yes, yes, it, absolutely. It's a race to the bottom. It becomes a numbers game. Someone once told me, um, 
It's like the pizza wars of the night. <laughs> yeah. Right. So we're, who can give you the bigger pizza for less cost? And at mm. some point you're just giving away massive pizza for free and it doesn't do anyone any good. And similarly, you know, if we say we have a thousand articles, someone else comes in and say, says, I have a thousand and one. Right. And then you have a thousand and two and then you're just chasing <laughs> that number. And then you're also then chasing the lowest price, which is not it's not a winning it's not a winning game. No, of course. Then to go back to that pizza analogy, then the quality becomes worse. The toppings yes. become more limited. Yeah. You know yes. what? We could chase that analogy for the rest of the session. So yes, let's abandon that it. one. Now. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a new uh, campaign underway to market The Economist. How do you describe it? How has it changed from what's come before? Yep. So this is the first time that we have embarked on a big brand campaign since probably early 2000s. Mm. And so we're taking a little bit of what we did previously, which is that iconic white font on red background, but we've changed the the tone of what we're messaging slightly to be uh, broader reaching, uh, a little bit more inclusive, appealing to a younger demographic, more gender-based uh, uh, balanced uh, demographic. The premise of it was actually, um, it came out of a, a, a research project that we did last year around what is it about the economist that actually resonates with this broader demographic? What do they see as a differentiator and what does it uh, mean to them? And what bubbled up was uh, this notion of independent journalism. That mm. really stood out as something that was really important to, to this audience. So we use that as our, our foundation. So we, we landed on a uh, campaign tagline, independent journalism for independent thinking. And then we layered on some really clever tongue-in-cheek headlines that are completely in the vein of what you would expect from The Economist. Uh, one, which is my favorite, is for fact's sake. And the reason why we landed on that Love it. was because we're in this world now of all-time high, low trust in news, you know, proliferation of fake news and disinformation. So this cacophony of noise is the moment for us to come in and, and reinforce what we've been doing for 180 years, which is providing clarity in this world of somewhat chaotic swirl, and it's even worse now. And so for fact's sake is meant to say, we have fact-based journalism, but also we understand the frustration that you're facing. So uh, that was that's how we landed on on that, and we've we've creative tested and did tons of uh, research around whether that would resonate, and uh, uh, all the results suggested that it was exactly on point with the audience we're trying to reach. Nice, fantastic. Well, we can get more into the audience in a second. I just wondered. Yeah. I've been talking to people for the last couple of weeks, months now, and that independence as a selling point has been brought to the fore time and time and time again. People feel, in a lot of cases, disenfranchised. They feel like there are, you know, a lot of the big newspaper organisations don't necessarily speak on their behalf or are, you know, by people like them. Why do you feel like now is the right time to really land that message? Is this something that has? Is this a feeling that has bubbled to the fore most recently, or is it just something that has been identified more recently? Yeah, I think it has. It has reach um, this sort of tipping point, right? I think it really started several years ago, actually, with probably the, the last U.S. election, mm. uh, but also just the, the way people are consuming and finding news um, generally. is It's a big challenge to the news industry, but I think it's, it's a greater challenge to society, actually. Um, and it's it, people are finding news through the side doors, which is through search and through social mm. in particular, and you never really know what what is a truly fact-based, rigorous uh, uh, form of, of 
journalism. Is this true? Is this spun? Is it, you know, completely fake? And, and that has just become um, more acute now that uh, particularly the younger generations, Gen Z's uh, uh, most notably, are just swirling around uh, articles or videos that they find in social media from their social media influencers, from yep. personalities. And, you know, I, I read a stat the other day that uh, Gen Z trust personalities on TikTok and Instagram more than they do journalists, right? Yeah. And so I think this notion of what is actually good journalism is is bothering a lot of people in society. And so the, having somewhere where you can anchor your trust in which is independent and not paid for by the coffers of big businesses or politicians is it's, it's, it's our moment. So I, I can't imagine for a second that people would look at the economist and go, you know, that has ever not been independent. It's never not been doing great independent journalism. So how are you seeking to move that on in people's minds? How are you really seeking to land that message with people through the marketing comms? Yeah. So the people who know the economist know that about the yeah. economist. They've never questioned it. They never really sat back and said, hmm, I wonder if we, if they've lost their independence. It's the younger audience, right? Mm. So, um, you know, years ago when we were purely print, you saw people, maybe your parents reading The Economist, they left The Economist magazine on the, on their coffee table, and that's how kids got exposed to it. Well, now we're, we're more digital. You have no idea what your parents are reading or your friends are reading on their phones. <laughs> Which and is worrying. So that, yeah, I wish I knew what my parents were reading at any given point. I want to know what they're doing. <laughs> it's interesting because that conversation started of when the kid sees their, their parent reading the magazine, then the parent can educate the child as to, oh, this is a really good source of journalism because it's independent. That That's breaking now, right? Mm. Uh, and so having... A, uh, a campaign and reinforcing that message of independent journalism in everything that we do digitally in particular is really important because that's our way of telling the brand story and brand value to newer audiences that might not have had that hand me down from their parents. So you've touched upon this a little bit, but I want to make it quite explicit if we can. So you've mentioned yeah. new audiences, you mentioned, you know, social platforms as well. Who are these new audiences you're seeking to reach? You know, what broad demographics are you trying to you know, scoop up there and what platforms and, and channels are you using to, to speak to them? Yeah. So uh, we're looking to age down as, you know, probably most legacy brands are. Uh, we Students are a really big priority for us especially um, in university because, you know, we see that we bring a ton of value to the university student during their studies. And it's a great way to start building that relationship as they, they progress through their professional lives. So aging down and then balancing the, the gender portfolio to be a little bit more, more female uh, in terms of how we're looking to reach them. There's the marketing uh, channel strategy, and then there's also the marketing product strategy. And so on the channel side, we're using uh you know, no big surprise that paid search, paid social, and that's primarily showcasing our our content. And then a, a ton of um, content recommendation platforms, again, showcasing our, our, our platform, our um, articles, and then uh, podcast marketing, a lot of audio marketing. In terms of the product side, we push the monthly free trial. Mm-hmm which is really meant to, to give that no risk, try before you're by uh, um, option for audiences that kind of grew up in that subscription world where they're used to the free trial. Uh, we have um, 
Espresso, which is our mobile only product. And that is meant to reach the Gen Z who are mobile, not only mobile first, they they don't know a world without mobile. Without mobile, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is shocking. And (laughs) my, my kids always ask me like, how, how did you ever survive? I'm like, I don't, I'm Gen X. I'm resilient. Like (laughs) it was like free reign parenting to like a whole nother level. So we're, (laughs) Um, but it's also a lower price point for espresso. So that gets in front of the the younger audience and it, it, it's built in a way that is um, aligned with their grazing news consumption habits. And then we have podcasts that we just launched and that's meant to really tap into that, more female demographic who tends to be uh, podcast listeners, people who are uh, time poor. They like mm. to consume their their news on the go, and it's uh, another very low price point, so that we can we can get people in who might be price, very price sensitive. So, I mean, there's a, there's a huge range of messages and and you know products you're speaking just seeking to land there. I wonder yeah. how you're actually going about measuring the success of a campaign like this. It's obviously very different when you do have the kind of performance led marketing approach where you can just kind of look at conversions. But for a brand campaign like this, how are you actually going about measuring that in the long term? Yeah. So we look at um, long term, we look at brand awareness, but to move a big ship, uh, particularly in a market like the U.S., it'll take 12 to 18 months before mm-hmm. we start seeing any real movement. But we look at um, brand awareness. We look at um, uh, con- brand consideration, purchase intent. Those are, you know, again, 12 to 18 months down the road, we'll see how we move the needle. In the interim, we look at uh, brand lift. So in specific channels that you don't have performance metrics such as audio or TV or out of home, we look at brand recall. We look at uh, likelihoods of taking an action. So did they go to the website or did they um, tell a friend to check Mm. out The Economist? So those are our little moments in time. And then we layer on an additional uh, level of data, which is uh, media mix modeling. To, to understand the impact of each channel and how they're all working together. Nice. It was only a couple of years ago where I got introduced to uh, mixed media modeling as a term. And since then, I've just, it's exploded. <laughs> I, I yeah. see it all over the place. Um, I suppose the, the question that naturally follows from that is, you know, you mentioned, and it's really refreshing actually to hear that you might not see, well, you won't see any sort of tangible results for 12, 18 months there. But I wondered when you were, or rather when the team was pitching uh, a brand campaign to a place like The Economist. You know, yeah. media budgets are so stretched at the moment. How do you get buy-in from the wider team to actually do a campaign like this? Because it, on the face of it, a lot of people will still see it as a cost and not an investment. Yes, exactly. So um, when I started the conversation, I mean, there was already an appetite to get more of the brand out there. Um, but the, you know, the inclination was it, it should be driving direct performance. And so there was a little bit of a, an education that that had to go on in terms of the value of brand marketing for performance marketing. So if you think about the funnel, mm. you don't have your brand awareness at the very top. There's no way you're widening the funnel. Your funnel suddenly becomes a cylinder, right? <laughs> and, and your top is so narrow that the fewer people you have at the top, it means the fewer people you need at the bottom. And it just gets narrower and narrower and narrower. You, a lot of brands, particularly during COVID, turned off brand awareness marketing because people weren't out. So it didn't make sense, right? Mm. Um, And a lot of brands said, oh, that actually worked. We didn't see any impact on our our conversions. But there was, during COVID, like that's, you 
basically strip that out of any modeling behavior. It's its, its own unique beast. Completely. And so then, uh, and a lot of brands saw a nice high off of COVID <laughs> because people were home. And so they didn't realize what was actually happening. There were storm clouds ahead. So mm. then fast forward a few years and they realized, brands in general realized, oh, wow, we have fewer people at the bottom to convert because we didn't tell them about us at the very top. So when I tell that story, it's easier to, to for the economists to realize, actually, we do we need to keep investing in the top of the funnel. And this is the way to do it. Um, and building the comfort that we do have metrics we can look at throughout to make sure that we're, we are moving in the right direction. It's just you won't see a massive game-changing uh, shift in brand awareness for, for a while. And yeah, it's interesting that because so much of what makes a successful media business is longevity, is provenance yes. of you know value over time. So you would have thought yes. that brand campaigns like this would be much more uh, readily obvious in the general public, so, you know, in their consumption. I remember the Telegraph did one not too many years ago that was all about you know, trumpeting their access to Whitehall, which kind of goes against that kind of independent journalism angle you're talking about there. Yeah. Why do you think it is so rare that we see these long-term brand building campaigns on behalf of media brands? Yeah, it's... It's interesting. If you look at entertainment media brands, they know the value of it. Yeah. It's it's usually the brands that rely less on big ticket shows or movies that tend to see uh, their their brand campaign budgets cut because it isn't immediate. And so they they don't realize the true value that it's it's driving even downstream in in the uh, short term. And so it's the first line that ever gets cut because you look at your budget and you say, well, what's the return on investment of that? Mm. Well, I don't know. I can't measure it. Okay, well, if you can't measure means that it has no value. But that's the absolute wrong way to, to think about it because it's, it is what fuels the rest of the machine. And so that's why I think a lot of um, news publishers – in particular, they still think very much in the commodity space mm. and that they'll lead more with get the subscription for a dollar a week, for example, or a pound a week and and chase the price um, pricing game versus building equity in your brand. And I always yeah. use Apple is obviously a very different uh, industry, but you think about it. it. It's ludicrous. When the iPhone came out in whatever, 2004 or five. Who would have thought that we'd all be walking around and have our children who are completely reckless and irresponsible walking around $1,500 devices in their pockets, right? Like, And it would just be normal. It'd be normal. And everyone says that's okay. So they never talk about price because they talk about the value you get by having an iPhone, not the, you know, the price point or the features. So a couple of times like you mentioned the US as a focus for the uh, for the campaign and younger audiences. And from, you know, I'm, I'm sort of out of the marketing game now writing about marketing, but from everything I heard for years and years, it's important to have uh, sort of a local voice telling the story of a brand in a lot of cases. So how is The Economist as a very international focused organization actually making sure that the message is appropriate to kind of those younger people in the US and having it feel authentic to them? Yep. So we um, we actually stay very true to our our pure identity. So we don't try to localize too much, other than interesting. Yeah, and it, like other than um, removing anything might, that might be too uh, colloquial from a British perspective, right? Like if it doesn't 
if, if the uh, idiom doesn't land in the U.S., then we won't use it. But otherwise, we still use British uh, English writing, which I'm Canadian, so it feels just like home. Uh, and uh, <laughs> the, uh, so we'll use that. The, we'll use the same cleverness, which is actually it, – it travels well internationally. Like it's, yeah. it's uniquely uh, – like universal, and yet there's something very uniquely British about it, which I think resonates really well with uh, with the U.S. audience in in uh, uh, in a surprising way. I was going to say that is surprising. That's really fascinating yeah. as well, I, because I know of a couple of um, media brands in the UK who are almost doing the opposite now. They're shifting away from that. They're having you know American colloquialisms and everything, aphorisms, just kind of working their way into the British copy, and it's causing. Some consternation there. So it's interesting to feel like it's not going that way, the other way around. Yeah. So this is obviously, it's still really early in the kind of the launch cycle for a campaign like this. Yes. To what extent will you be uh, tweaking it as you go along, as you sort of start seeing those early results? And how much freedom is there within there to actually iterate on what's come before? So I think what you will see um, as a constant will be that campaign tagline of independent journalism for independent thinking. Mm. That is unwavering. We want to stay true to that. We will be refreshing the clever headlines throughout the campaign. The campaign is uh, currently planned for 12 months, but it is something that I want to continue as an always on uh, uh, line in our marketing strategy. Uh, You'll see a spike and sustain throughout the year. So during key moments, it will spike up with additional media. Uh, We, because we constantly get creative testing input, we constantly get other data signals, we will be iterating and we have full liberty to iterate on, on the creatives otherwise. So you'll, you'll start seeing new TV spots. We have one set going live tomorrow. Oh, very nice. First, and then we'll keep refreshing throughout the year. We have radios that uh, ads that will refresh and then all of our out of home will refresh. So that it just feels like a fresh take on, that overarching campaign of independent journalism. Uh, nice. And you preempted my question about whether there are certain events coming up uh, throughout the calendar year that you were going to you know, seek to align yourself around. It sounds like that's something you're going to be doing with that spike and sustain. Yep, absolutely. I mean, that, I can't share some things that are coming in the summer, uh, but that we will definitely be aligning around the U.S. election. Um, of course, makes sense. We take advantage of that. Um, and it is such a massive election year globally. So we will be aligning with other big election moments globally as well. When you are approaching new audiences entirely, you're coming at them from a cold start, I suppose. So are you trying to replicate that feeling or are you trying to speak to them in a way that is, you know, obviously it's creating a new behavior for them, actually coming to and reading The Economist, subscribing to The Economist. To what extent do you feel like there is a chance to turn that new audience into kind of the the same as the existing audience in terms of how they feel, how they think about The Economist? Yeah, and and it's... A lot of that happens when they come into our subscriber base. And so that that happens, that communication happens with the way that we onboard them, expose them to all the benefits that they have with their subscriptions. So trying to get them habituated to using the app, to attending our really exclusive live events where they, they can see our journalists and, and thought leaders in the industry. So that as soon as we can get them in and expose them to that full experience, they then become very uh, much like the, 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 you know, the previous subscribers, mm. they don't behave the same because they're obviously a different generation, but they build their own connection with the brand because they see the additional value that they get from being surrounded by uh, all the other benefits of the economist. One thing when we, when we're trying to reach the younger audiences, 
we even some of the older audiences, like I'm trying not to just lead with finance, business, and yeah. politics. Really trying to communicate that one, we are digital primarily, and we are not just weekly. So you get content every single day. So we do that by show, showcasing a ton of the content that comes out and showing the breadth of the content. So you'll mm. see on uh, social when we're pushing out uh, content ads, a lot of it is content around uh, uh, behavioral economics, right? So what's the best age gap for a relationship, right? Like, should you send your children to private schools? Like those types of topical conversations that make people sit up and take notice rather than, okay, let me just learn about whatever economic policy in whatever country, which is also important. And, and some people obviously get very excited about it, but it's really meant to show we are a source of thoughtful analysis and reporting across a whole swath of topics. See, that's so interesting. Elisa, I just interviewed um, somebody from the Reuters Institute about news avoidance. And he said that one of the potential solutions to that is to show audiences that you aren't just writing about what your shareholders care about. It's writing about what the audience cares about. And so yes. this is a concerted effort to prove that The Economist is not just about, you know, financial information and, and kind of that very hard political news. It's actually, you know, much more broad and actually to speak to that audience who you're speaking to, you're seeking to reach rather. Yeah. And news avoidance is really interesting. I, I've been thinking a lot about that recently. A lot of people from what I've read avoid the news because it's one, there's just so much of it and they don't know how to filter it. Uh, and two, it's so... Um, dark and heavy and negative. And there's what they're searching for is the lighter content without being dumbed down and also um, solution-oriented uh, content. And that's where the economist occupies a really unique uh, place in that journalism landscape because we do look at issues from all different sides, right? We, we flip it around, we flip it over and we look at it and we analyze it from all different sides and then we'll land on a, a perspective and you understand why we landed there. You don't have to agree with it, but you've understood where, where we've landed as opposed to the war in Ukraine is out of control. And then you're and left then that's to it. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <Yeah>. Okay. So, <laughs> um, so that's where I think, you know, even more than ever, this style of journalism is really unique and getting that marketing message out is through the types of content that we, we push is actually um, resonating quite well. We're aware that that, uh, that news around it may have generated a little bit of disagreement. <laughs> if you disagree or if you agree or um, if you think we should just get in the bin, come and tell us. Um, <laughs> We have a community tab. We have a community forum. You can come and join us over at voices.media slash community. Uh, yeah, we'd love to have you along. Um, you can come and join 100 plus other media professionals and come and chat about the things that matter to you. And I cannot believe that entries for the fifth, is that right? Our fifth, fifth publisher annual. podcast awards. There's closing in a week. Get your entries in, people. Go over to publisherpodcast.com. Take advantage of a free entry to the publisher podcast. And, you know, be in the company of people like The Telegraph, The Financial Times, The Guardian, The Economist, and some scrappy smaller organizations like Reby Media and Simon Brew 
with mm. film stories. Um, where that? can you enter those? Yeah. <laughs> I said publisherpodcast.com. Listen. Did you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> publisherpodcast.com. If you say it five times. Peter appears in your Peter mirror. Appears. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> publisherpodcast.com 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 but for now thank you so much for listening to this episode of MIDI Voices if you've enjoyed it please do send it on to somebody else please do recommend us (laughs) (laughs) every little helps but for now thank you so much for listening and yucky dark bye 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 bye